So our student pastor's talking smack. You better. Um, ever since I traveled with a team from Southbrook to go to Poland about eight or nine years ago, I've been just really kind of broken about uh, the whole World War II, the things that happened there. My dad was, uh, was in the Air Force. My, most of my uncles were also in World War II. And one of the most infamous leaders of the Allied troops against the regime, the Nazi regime, was Winston Churchill. An interesting, interesting guy. And he's noted for his leadership, but what many people don't realize is he was also really famous for his generosity. Extremely generous man. In fact, he's the one who made the statement. He said, uh, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. And I can't think of a place that exhibits that value, that truth, more so than, than Southbrook. I thank you all for the part that you play in our, in our generosity. Someone has said that um, generosity isn't what God wants from you, it's what God wants for you. And it's not like God somehow needs us, but he, needs, he wants us to experience that because when we do that, we're becoming more and more like his character, his quality. And we're going to talk more about his generosity a little bit in the text that we're studying here today. And so we have every week, whether you're here, whether you're in small theater, whether you're traveling, whether you're home, uh, we have the opportunity and the privilege really to participate in, in the ministries and missions that we partner with and to, to have an impact not only in other people's lives, but also our own life and our own soul and the deep part of our heart. So thank you if you're involved. Thank you for your generosity. We can't say it enough. And if you're just kind of wanting to experience that a little bit more and have questions about it, you can just talk to someone at the Information Center. If you want to give today, there are generosity boxes up front and also in the back and also at the Information Center. You can go right to PushPay or go to our website and click on Donate. But thank you again for, for being a part of this amazing ministry. It was several months ago that I was in a meeting with Charlie and, and the other teachers here at Southbrook, and we were talking about the Roman series. We were already in it a little bit. I don't remember how far along. I remember Charlie making the comment. He says, when we're finished with Romans, we'll be a different church. I, I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself and the impact that just this study has had upon me. I've learned more about Romans than I ever have before, and I've been in ministry a long time. I'm not telling you how long, but I just loved it. And this eighth chapter is truly the gem of the New Testament. If you've missed weeks in the previous, go back and check them out. And, and uh, again, listen today, but also next Sunday is super sunny, but, but Charlie will be finishing up with this, this great text of more than conquerors with the last few verses of this chapter. Now, I spoke up here, I think it was December the 12th was the last time I preached, and Right at the end of the message, I shared with you that I had finally talked my two daughters and my granddaughter, Reagan, up here to have a family tattoo. Okay, they finally talked me into having a family. <laughs> That's more accurate. But anyway, we did that, and the reason I'm bringing it up again today is because of what the tat actually says. That was just more or less, hey, we did this, but I want to tell you more of what, what, why we did it to show you how serious I am about this Roman series. Not that I'm comparing it with Charlie or anyone else, but I'm just saying I take this, this series really seriously. And here's, here's, the, here's the tat that we, we did. Um, 
And you can see my arm is the one of the smooth young arms in the, in the picture, and my two daughters can fight over who has the hairy arm. But um, the message is saying God is greater than our highs and lows. And it's Romans 8, 28 through 39, which is right here where we are today. Uh, Romans verse 28 and verse 38, 39 are like the bookends of this text we're going to look at today. Verse 28, Charlie hit last week. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Great, great promise that somehow all things work together for good. But then the other end of the, of the bookend is verses 38 and 39 where Paul says, For I am convinced. And Charlie's going to talk. I'm not going to steal his thunder, but that's, that's the whole idea for next week. I am convinced. What does that mean? That neither height nor depth nor anything can separate us from the love of God. But right here in the middle... Which is what we're going to talk about today. And I love the Paul's like a, both a teacher and a pastor in this eighth chapter. If you go back and re get, begin reading with verse one of chapter eight, even though there weren't chapters and verses in the letter that Paul wrote, but that's how we have, have kind of broken it down. But he talks, he's teaching about these soaring attributes of God, these amazing attributes of who God is. He's like the teacher. He mentions the Holy Spirit 17 times in those verses. 17. Well, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. He's our Abba Father. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. If you remember last week's message, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us or sets us apart. All these amazing characteristics of who God is and how, what that means to us today. Now, now Paul kind of becomes Pastor Paul. He wants to help us to learn what it's like to live as a child then. What is it like to live in that identity that he is my Abba, my Daddy? And how does that impact how I face struggles and trials and doubts? And so he uses what's called an interrogatory style of, of pastoring here, of teaching, and that is he uses questions. And there are six questions in seven verses that we're going to look at here today. Before we do that, I just want to share with you, I love the idea of questions because, in fact, if, if I know there are some people here from from the church that I pastored in Xenia before coming here, and I preached entire sermon series on questions. I love especially the questions Jesus asks, and even the questions that God asks, starting all the way back in the garden. Adam, where are you? And on the intriguing questions that, that when we ask a question, it kind of causes us to stop and think, so what's my answer? How do I respond to that? A few months ago, um, comedian Mike Rayburn did a routine I heard on the radio on a Laugh USA or something like that, and he did this routine on the life-changing questions that are asked in music or in songs. And so I took a note of, of, of a number of those, added my own, and uh, this is kind of what he was saying, so put your seatbelts on. What about love? Where is the love? Who do you love? Will I be loved? How deep is your love? How do, why do fools fall in love? Or is you or is you ain't my baby? <laughs> Who wrote the book of love? Do you believe in life after love? What's love got to do with it? Do you love me? Will you love me forever? Do you need me? Will you still need me? Why does love have to be so sad? How can you mend a broken heart? Have you ever loved a woman? Tell me why. Do you want to know a secret? Why must I be a teenager in love? Will you still need me when I'm 64? 
or 74. Will it go around in circles? Will it fly high like a bird in the sky? Why do birds suddenly appear every time you're near? Can you just see the sunshine? Can't you just feel the moonshine? And it just like a friend of mine to kick me from behind? Do you really want to hurt me? Do you really want to make me cry? What's it all about, Alfie? Do you like pina colada and getting caught in the rain? Who will stop the rain? Have you ever seen the rain? Why, where have all the flowers gone? Isn't life strange? Do you believe in magic? Is she really going out with him? What's she going to do when she says goodbye? What's so good about goodbye? How do I live without you? When do I see you again? What have you done for me lately? Are you lonesome tonight? Do you want to dance? Can I have this dance? What about me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me calling? Do you hear what I hear? What is life? Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Is it just a pity? What's, what's forever for? Does anyone really know what time it is? Does anyone really care? If a picture paints a thousand words, then why can't I paint you? If a, if a face could launch a thousand ships, then where am I to go? Do you know where you're going to? Are you going to Scarborough Fair? Do you know the way to San Jose? Can you tell me how to get to Sesame Street? Should I stay or should I go? And for heaven's sake, who let the dogs out? <laughs> Life-changing questions, right? Uh, well, the questions that Paul asks are a whole lot more impactful than those. Here's question number one. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, now will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We're just going to take this a chunk at a time to these next six verses, and these are the first two. Usually whenever we use the word if... There's always an implication of some uncertainty, isn't there? Like, is Cincinnati Bengals ever going to make it back to the Super Bowl? Will Cleveland ever get to the Super Bowl? Is, is uh, the 49ers going to win? And they may or may not. Is, is, is uh, the Chiefs going to win? And they may or may not. Is, is Taylor Swift going to show up to the game? Uh, will the cameras show her in the, in the booth, wherever she is? And, uh, well, so, but most of our questions have this may or may not but in the original language in which the New Testament was written, there's a way to, to construct the grammar of that question, of that word if, that can tell us if this is what's called a first-class condition or a second-class condition. second-class would be, it may or may not. But a first-class condition is absolutely certain. So guess which one Paul uses when he says, if God is for us. First-class condition, he's saying, he absolutely, unequivocally is. You don't have to wonder, is he for me? Is he against me? No. He is for us. And based upon all these things we've been talking about, if God is for us and he is, then who can possibly compete with that with him? And of course, the answer is none. No one. Um, in all of the messages that we share, we always try to make sure there's something that we take away with us to make our lives better or to add to us or to kind of take the message and start living those things out. Today, I'm just going to share two things with you. Keep it real simple. Two things that if we will begin to implement these principles into our life, then the goal is that we can live our life with much greater, if not absolute, certainty that we can say as Paul I am certain. Here they are. Surface your doubts and then live loved. Surface your doubts and live loved. What does it mean to surface your doubts? We are kind of taught from very early on to don't doubt. In fact, some of you may have been raised in a church that just didn't even encourage questions or doubt. That was wrong. There was a lack of faith if you ever have any doubt. 
And these questions that Paul gives us are not rhetorical questions. They're not just thrown out there. They're meant to be answered. It was back in November, middle of November, I received a call from our pastoral counseling ministry here at Southbrook, needing someone to officiate a funeral for a Southbrook family that had gone through a real tragic loss. This young couple um, was pregnant with their first child to their marriage. They had an older son, but um, the child was doing fine, and then uh, through some testing, they determined that there were some complications, and so they performed an emergency C-section at 25 weeks gestation. And the little girl um, lived eight days and passed away of the medical complications. And so I said, I'll, I'll, I'll agree to do the service. And so I talked with the family, met with the husband and wife, and, and uh, talked with them by text and phone, and then at the, at the funeral home, and the day of this funeral was there, and they had the little tiny little casket up front, really just emotionally heartbreaking for everyone there. And you can imagine the, the, the feelings and the emotion that was there. They also had this eight, nine, I think he's maybe nine-year-old son. And I met him for the first time at the service and talked with him briefly. There wasn't any kind of a long conversation, just talked with him briefly, sitting around the front row as I began to, to share the message. And I'm, I'm just trying my best to bring some comfort and strength to the family. I knew the emotions were really strong. And so to help me get to know the family a little bit better, I did some f- social media stalking. And uh, just to see some pictures, some things like that that might help me know them better so I can know how the best way to maybe to bring, provide some care for them and comfort. And, and so in the, in the message, I've started out and I was talk, talking about some of the things because Christmas was right around the corner and I can't imagine again how emotional that's going to be. So I mentioned that I saw pictures in, in, on social media of, this, their, of what I thought was their house turned out to be, I think their grandparents' house, but I mean fully decorated with lights and lawn ornaments and everything. I said, man... You guys really love Christmas, don't you? Rhetorical question. But the nine-year-old said, we sure do. <laughs> and right at first, the family was trying to like, uh, like settle the, the kid down. I said, no, that's fine. Let, let him go. And we began this conversation in this message that I'll never forget. Uh, I said, what do you like best about Christmas? Well, presents. What's one of your favorite gifts? What it was leading to was the fact that God gave us this greatest gift of his son, Jesus. And, and uh, then I, I saw they had pick, put pictures of uh, Halloween, of their costumes. And I said, what would you dress up as, as, as for this last Halloween? Because one of my favorite authors, Ted Decker, refers to this body as, as our costume. That inside of us is the soul, but this is just a costume. And so uh, he was telling me about, uh, again, this conversation out loud. And I could feel the, the, just the, the heaviness just kind of dissipating from the room as, as this little boy, nine-year-old boy, and I are having this conversation about, about life and about Jesus. And so uh, we talked about it. I, I knew he loved Star Wars. And so I said, if you were going to fly up into the air in, in a spaceship, what would you have to put on? A space helmet. And I said, why? Because he said, I couldn't breathe up there without the space helmet. I said, but when you came back to earth, what would you do? I'd take the space helmet off. Why? Because I don't need it anymore. I, and I said, that's right. And I said, this is our, like our earth suit. And your baby sister has an earth suit. And she doesn't need it anymore. She's with Jesus. And I, I tell you this story because it just was such an amazing, amazing moment that I could have never have planned. But God's presence was there and used an nine-year-old little boy 
to bring comfort to this whole family of people who are grieving so deeply. So when we face these questions, they probe down deep into our heart and, and they help us to understand what, what life is truly all about. And they, they cause us to, to come to a response, to answer the questions. No matter how long you've been a Christ follower, I know you've had those doubts at times and wonder, God, are you really here? Is, are, you, are you really present? It doesn't feel like it. So God, can I, can I know that you're present? Uh, it's kind of like couples who have been married for a long time and they, they'll say, well, you know, we've, we know it. We've been married for 20 years, and we've never had an argument. I said, really? Have you ever had a conversation? <laughs> Not even of substance, just any conversation where you had possibly a possible disagreement of, of opinions. And, and, uh, and so how well do you know each other? And so, well, there was a couple who was celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary. They went out to this nice restaurant and they're sitting across from each other, having their meal just like normal, just kind of celebrating. And all of a sudden, the husband uh, pulls out his back pocket a handkerchief, unfolds it all the way, blows his nose. Then he refolds it, fold by fold, and catches it and puts it back in his pocket. And she the whole time is looking at him like with, with her eye. Like, and he said, what's wrong? I said, do you always do that? <laughs> what? Take out your handkerchief, unfold it all the way, blow your nose, and then fold it all the way back up neatly and put it back in your pocket. He said, well, yeah, is that a problem? Well, it might be. So what do you mean? He said, well, whenever I see your trousers thrown down for the wash and I see a folded handkerchief like that in the back pocket, I assume that it's clean and just put it back in your drawer. <laughs> he says, well, now I understand something I've never understood before. He said, what's that? why I can't ever get my glasses clean. <laughs> so how well do you really know each other? And, and are you willing, again, to, to surface your doubts, to deal with your doubts? Let's look at these questions that Paul asks. Because we live on this continuum of faith and doubt. Now, I love the quote by Tim Keller. He says, we live on the continuum of faith and doubt. Faith without doubt is like a body without antibodies. We need those doubts. It's through those doubts when we surface them, that it causes us to express our insecurities, and, and that's the pathway to, to certainty. The unexamined life is never going to be a more than conquerors kind of a life because we're not really digging deep to really give anything of any substance inside. God welcomes your questions, and he welcomes your doubts. Faith without doubt is like a body without antibodies. We need those antibodies, don't we? And we need those doubts to grow our faith to make us stronger. Here's question number one. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And what's his answer? It is God who justifies. The word charge is an actually a, a legal word that is a forensic word that means evidence. We sang about evidence this morning. The very first song was all about evidence. And so Paul is saying, who has any clear, convincing, compelling, convicting evidence against those whom God has chosen? Not hearsay, not opinion, Clear, convicting evidence. His answer is no one. The only one who could bring a charge against you is the one who has chosen you and has justified you. And he doesn't bring a charge against you. He doesn't bring any evidence. In fact, the evidence is gone. The evidence is that you're his son and daughter. 
He's your father. I love the, the imagery behind the word chosen. Some of you are watching the chosen. And you're kind of getting an idea of what that's all about, the chosen. There's probably, there's probably not a person in this room, especially our, our students, who have not experienced a negative experience of choosing up sides, whether it be for athletic contests, whether it be for anything, where everyone's in a big pool and then two people are the captains and they start choosing their sides. And the trauma and the anxiety of standing there listening to this like, where am I going to be picked? Am I going to be picked at all? Is there going to be an odd number? And someone's going to say, well, I guess I got to have you. You're the only one left. What a horrible thing to do. Anyone, any team that I've ever coached, if I have volleyball players here that have been under me or, or other, other types of sports, we don't ever do public choosings or public selections. It's always done privately to make up even sides because no one wants that, that trauma of feeling like, does anybody want me? Am I, am I going to be chosen? Let me tell you, you are chosen. You are chosen. And the one who has chosen you has also justified you. So that, isn't that a great promise for all of us to know that, that no one can bring any charge against us because he has chosen us? Question number two, who then is the one who condemns? And Paul goes ahead and gives this answer. No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He uses the word condemns, and this isn't important. First of all, the word condemns means judged or literally condemned or damned. And he uses it both in present and future tense. This is important. You maybe understand why God has forgiven me for my present or my past sins. What about my future mistakes? Covered. It's covered. It's covered. That same Jesus who's raised to life is at the right hand interceding for us. You don't have to beg for mercy. You don't have to plead for mercy. You don't have to write letters to the judge. When I was working at the Xenia Municipal Court, one of my jobs occasionally, not all the time, was to, to gather all the mail that would come in and make sure it gets to the proper departments, and especially those letters that were, and we always had letters written to the judge. Always had letters. Judge pleading for mercy, please let me, let me go. Please let my, uh, the guy that I've got a, a, a restraining order against, let it be dropped. I mean, all kinds of letters to the judges. One day, and this wasn't a letter, this was actually an appearance, we had a visiting judge. We always, we always developed a top 10 list at the court. And through the course of the year, we would always say, oh, this is a nominee, this is a nomination, this is a funny thing that happened. So I'd, I would keep track of all the things that happened. Then at the end of the year, Judge Murray and I would then decide, and he always had the final say, he is the judge, and he and I would decide what are the best top 10 stories that's happened that, that year. And we, we did it very discreetly. It wasn't like things we did publicly, but we had, a, this is one of our top 10 lists. So we had a visiting judge appear. And this young gal, a senior in college, a local college in our, in our county, was standing before the judge, and she had been charged with passing on a double yellow line. The judge says, how would you like to plead? She said, guilty. Ah, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Not guilty. Your Honor, it was such a foggy night, and my windows were all frosted up, and I could only see one of those lines, one of those yellow lines. And the judge says, ma'am, you're not helping yourself. 
double yellow line, single yellow line. It's still a yellow line. You're not helping yourself. And finally, she says, listen, Judge, honestly, I really am a good driver. I really am a good driver. Please, I'm really a good driver. Don't, don't find me guilty. And the judge is looking at some paperwork and says, you're not a good driver. This is your fourth moving offense just this year. So we can plead for mercy all we want to, but here's the promise in this particular question, is that we have an advocate. We have someone interceding for us who's at the right hand of God. He is our defense attorney and our judge at the same time who can possibly condemn us when we have that kind of representation to say, this is my child. Question number three, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes from who to what? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Probably things that maybe, maybe which, all of which Paul had experienced in his own life. He said, I'm speaking from experience. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, literally day by day. We're considered as sheep to the slaughter. So he says, who shall suffer? Who shall put a distance between us and the love of Christ? Who can bring a division between us and the love of Christ? Nothing can. Nothing can. It, it's kind of like it, there, there are two categories of things that could possibly assault our, our confidence and our security. There's the big stuff that happens inside of us. And we all understand that. You know your heart, I know mine, and they're like, there are things I, I can't believe I'm still thinking this way. I should be further along in my faith in what I am. I can't believe I just said that. I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe that I did that. So we have this stuff inside of us that when we deal with those, it's like, can God still love me when I'm still thinking like this, when I'm still acting this way? Does this separate me from the love of Christ? And Paul says, no. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. But what about the things outside of us? I could list, and many of you could too right now, people just within this body of, of believers here at Southbrook, just this past year, really, really hard things that you're going through or have faced. Things just like this family I was talking about and, and beyond. And sometimes when those things happen, it can assault our, our confidence, can't it? It can be, well... Why am I going through this hard of a thing? Does, does that mean God's with me? How, how could God let this happen to me? We sang about a song about new wine and how we're right now feeling like we're in the press. And some of you right now are feeling that way. You're like, I'm, I'm in the press. It's really heavy stuff in my life. Can we have the confidence that what he's making is new wine? We can. Paul says we can. It doesn't take away the intensity of the trouble, but we can. And so we have all those things. One of my favorite, our, our family's favorite uh, movies is The Shack. And The Shack is all about a story about a family, especially a father, who goes through tragic loss in his life. Heartrending, tragic loss. And the whole story is all about him trying to sort all this stuff out, trying to surface his doubts and trying to, to, to know what, what's going on. God, you cannot be here and let stuff like this happen to my life. This is, this is horrible stuff. And, and through the whole story, it's all about God saying, hey, you've not been alone. I know you felt alone. You've not been alone. I'm there all the time. 
and I'll be the one that gives you strength to get through this. So that question, who can separate us? What can separate us? Um, J.F. Packer says this. He says, think about your feelings. Argue yourself out of the gloom they have spread, the, the emotions. Look up from your problems to the God of the gospel. So Packer says, when you're experiencing those things and you're wondering, can God possibly be here when I'm going through this? That's when you want to look up. Look up to the God of the gospel. He is there. That's his promise. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Um, now, the second takeaway is I want to challenge you to live loved. Surface your doubts. Wrestle with them. Ask your questions. God welcomes them. But he wants you to come to the conclusion that you can live your life knowing that you are indeed loved. I, uh, before the service this week, I was asking some people that I, I knew that had, had, were going through a pregnancy, and they're, right now they have a preborn child. And one in particular I just spoke to today, Bailey, uh, Bailey and Philo Ritz, talked with Bailey and said, because I guess tomorrow is when they find out the gender reveal. They don't know the gender of the child. They haven't picked a name, so this is our first child. I said, so let me ask you a question. Do you love this child? Oh, yeah. I said, why? I just do. Do you have any reason? Well, I mean, I felt the child kick, but I mean, no, I, no, I just love this child. You haven't given a name. You don't know the gender. I mean, you don't know what the, does it make any difference that the child may not be the most beautiful girl or the most handsome guy in the world? No. Does it make any difference that the child may not get good grades all the time, straight as all? No. None of that matters. I mean, when our daughter, Michonne, was born, she, uh, I mean, we would say, what a beautiful baby, but she was a, a bald head for like the first several months of her life, and we had to put those elastic bows on her head and still dress her in pink, and people would say, what's his name? <laughs> but I mean, to us, she was still a beautiful, now she's beautiful now, I got long flowing hair, but at the time, she was as bald as a cue ball. <laughs> but that didn't matter. It didn't matter. We love him just because we love there's an interesting verse of scripture in the Old Testament then, and, uh, back in Deuteronomy. And what the context of this is that, that the children of Israel are being challenged to go into the land of Canaan and possess the land. This is the land I promised you. So, and the people of Israel kind of may be wondering, why us? Why did you pick us? And so this, this verse, and I love this verse. I'm going to use this forever. But uh, the verse says this, God wasn't attracted to you and didn't choose you because you were big and important. The fact is, there was almost nothing to you. That's a little humbling, isn't it? He did it out of sheer love, keeping the promise he made to your ancestors. In other words, God is saying, I love you because I love you. That's it. Now, guys, let me challenge you to do something. Uh, maybe or if you've got a, a fiance or a wife and just go out and say, if she ever asks you, do, do you love me? And you say, well, yeah. She's, and she says, why do you love me? Be very careful how you answer that question. Because <laughs> if you say something like, well, man, when we were dating, you were so hot. <laughs> or to him, you were so strong and so muscular and, and you were so intelligent. You were so, such a good provider. You had such wisdom and all, all those things. Because that's where their, their feeling loved is always going to shift to that. Because what happens when 
the, uh, the sand in the hourglass figure shifts to the bottom of the hourglass, of the hourglass. <laughs> uh, some of you don't, what's an hourglass? Uh, so when those things change, what happens if you lose your job? What happens? So if your feeling loved is based upon those conditions, then that's a problem. And God says, I don't put any of those conditions. It's not because you pray so much. It's not because you're such a good moral person. It's not because you're such a, a good this or that. I love you. Why? Because I love you. I love you because I love you. And that's it. In fact, Henry Nouwen says this in, a, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal. God's love was a love that existed before any rejection was possible and will still be there after all rejections have taken place. In fact, God's love is not just unconditional. It's actually counter-conditional when you think about it. So surface your doubts and live loved. And that's the recipe for a person who can say, I am convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Next week, that's Charlie's message. Don't miss it. Here's how I want to close today. I want to, I want to give you a gift. I want to share a blessing over you. Uh, this is one of my favorite quotes. I don't use it very often, but it's, it's just one that I got to thinking about as I was developing this message. I thought, this is how I want to close to really encourage you to live loved. So I want you just to relax. If you want to close your eyes and receive it that way, fine. If you want to just sit there as you are, that's fine too. I'm not going to tell you any posture whatsoever. And when I finish the story, there's not going to be any closing prayer or anything like that. We're just going to, going to, you can get up and make your way to the communion tables. You can make your way to the generosity, whatever, wherever you want to do. Make your way to the kids, Southbrook kids to pick up your kids or go to somebody else and, and greet someone. But just want you to receive this blessing. And I think you'll understand why as I read it. It's written by S.J. Hill. And it's just a little tiny book. You can read it in probably a few hours. It's called God Enjoys You. Would you receive this blessing and this gift? The Father is ravished by you. You make him smile. You make him laugh. You make him leap for joy. You make his heart beat faster. You make him sing a song for joy. Whether you understand that or, or not, doesn't stop God from responding to you in that way. He looks at you and grins. He sees your hair, your skin, your smile, and he rejoices. The blemishes, scars, and extra pounds may weigh on your heart, but they don't weigh on him. God loves your freckles. He loves your funky tape-shaped toes. He loves you just as you are. He loves your uniqueness. He loves the way you smile that only your face can radiate. He loves you when you're awake, vibrant, and full of life. And he loves you when you're down, struggling and discouraged. He even loves... He loves you when you're sleeping. He gets excited when you wake up, even with your morning breath and your sleep tucked in the corners of your eyes. He can't wait to hear your voice. He looks forward to your first thoughts. He loves accompanying you throughout the day. He loves and enjoys being with you at work. He isn't watching the clock or tapping his toe until 5 o'clock. Just being with you is enough. He loves talking with you, traveling with you, and being tender with you. He loves watching you enjoy his creation. He smiles when you look at the mountains, sea, or sky, and think of him. The truth is, God really likes you. In fact, he enjoys you. 
You may not think you measure up to the supermodel or Mr. GQ status, but he does. Thanks to the gracious act of his son, he sees you perfectly redeemed. He isn't tolerating you. He isn't putting up with you. He isn't waiting for you to get older and more mature in your Christian walk before he can love or enjoy you. He loves you right where you are. Through the blood of Jesus, you're perfectly redeemed. That means if you're a tennis player, you've just served an ace. If you're a baseball player, you've hit a home run. If you're a golfer, you've shot a hole in one. Do you get the point? This is what he sees. He's not keeping a record of your mistakes or the times you blew it. His blood takes care of all those things. All he sees is you, and he enjoys you. God bless you.